Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. This is uh, Simon Sweetman, and if you were listening last week uh, to the conversation with Ricky Gooch, he'd supplied the music for me for the podcast for the first 55 episodes, and we kick off again now with uh, what you hear underneath there. That's the, that's the new music that's also from Ricky. So thanks to him for the music and for being such a great guest. Um, we're brought to you by Tea Leaf Tea, uh, Yeasty Boys, and Lafare, and... Uh, and, you know, if you want to advertise on the podcast or sponsor the podcast, um, keen to hear from people. So just putting that out there. This is an old conversation. I recorded this over a year ago um, and lost it and thought, well, that's that. It's not going to, yeah, you know, and then I found it again in a bunch of files. And um, it's a little bit crackly, and um, but I still think it's worth listening to. It's a conversation with Paul McClaney. So he is... Uh, um, best known, I've probably well, he recorded a lot of music under his own name, and also before that, uh, under the name Gramsci, which became a band but was started as a solo project. He's also, you know, he was part of Fly My Pretties for a while. He's collaborated with Ryan Sheehan and, and the guys from Jacob. He's tight with them and done work with them. And uh, he was a member of the SJD band. Um, and then he put out a bunch of sort of Three, four years ago, he started putting out these records under the name The Impending Adorations. There are four al- full albums and an EP, and um, you'll hear bits of that music. And, and we talked quite a bit about that at the start of this conversation because uh, it was almost like a, a secret project or just a sort of, he just wanted to put it out there. It was sort of a personal project and then just see if there was any kind of grab on the music. And it's, it's, it's really great. It's, uh, you know, still got some of his guitar stuff in there and definitely his vocals, um, but it's more about sort of beat making and electronica and manipulating um, sounds, creating sort of beats from organic um, noises and then twisting them and turning them, chopping them, chopping them and screwing them. So um, yeah, I, I listened back to this conversation when I found it and I thought, hey, why not run this? It's not completely up to date. As I say, it's it's a nearly an 18 month old conversation. But it was up to date as of that point. And so we go through his whole career and there's lots of things that he's done, lots of great music and he's got lots of um, sound advice. So this is episode 56 of Sweetman Podcast, me talking with Paul McClaney. I've just reviewed that the fourth impending adorations this morning so um because i listened to it (laughs) yeah yeah no 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 (laughs) it is a positive review well because you gave it to me a little bit early and i listened to it quite a bit early on and then i just sort of shelved well you know just filed it because i got into other stuff and then you hit me with the ep the bonus (laughs) the the coda the add-on and so i started playing that quite a bit and i enjoyed that and then i I really did forget all about, I mean, shit, actually there's this whole album that I haven't dealt with, so last couple of days I went back to that, and um, so I've just kind of put something in place of that, but I was talking to um, Jeff Boyle on uh, Friday at their gig, and I said, I must have said something about talking to you and about the albums and stuff, and I said, uh, you know, I was just thinking how prolific you've actually been, not just with impending adorations, but, you know, across your career or careers and uh, Jeff said um, and that's just the stuff he's released and I said well yes you know I I said to him you would probably know better than a lot of people that I'm sure there's you know I I wondered so 
I thought maybe we could start by talking about that, like what kind yeah. of what's your process and how it's changed across um, the names, yeah. the, the projects, and how the sort of um, demo stage turns into the finished product and how much you're recording and mm. yeah. So may, well, maybe if we look at impending iterations. Well, yeah, impending iterations is um. Well, it's documented that that name came out of. Someone asked me when my wife was pregnant with my daughter yeah. if, um, if I had any sense, any anxiety about becoming a dad, and I said no, more sense of impending adoration. Yeah. And it really became like a, I got really, ever since I saw that film, like when I was a teenager, um, Until the End of the World, you know, the Vin Vendors yeah, film about yeah, recording yeah. dreams yeah. and stuff. And I, and I think once you hit about 32, 33, like nostalgia becomes this really, really powerful um, drug. I'm waiting for that to change. Yeah. <laughs> but like YouTube is just like this yeah. sort of massive nostalgia machine and you can just mm. dive in and any sort of half forgotten memory or half remembered, you know, if it's Mr. Ben or if it's, you know, some commercial or something from the deep dive distant past, you can access it. And sometimes when you actually do find it or stumble across it, it's, mm. it has less of, the, less of the pathos or the actual nostalgia that you're actually searching for, and that's the, the memory of that. Mm. So I got really into like, this idea of um, what the memory of music would be, and, mm -hmm. and, um, and also, um, I've been driven for a very long time, I, I remember reading this interview with Robert Smith about, um, and he was recording the follow-up to, to Wish, and he was saying it was going to be far more like Disintegration, and, mm -hmm. and he, was just, he described this record that just sounded like the best record. Yeah ever going to be yeah and then the 13th or whatever it came out and it was, it was you know not one of the more forgettable <laughs> cure albums yeah and, but it's it stuck in my mind that i I'd, I'd listened to this record i'd imagined it you know yeah it, yeah not, in a, not dreamed a, it not in a definite way i, I mm. was like melodies or harmonies but it's mm. just like that i dreamed my response to it or, or what it would sound like and and all through gramsci and all that stuff which is you know outside of the acoustic guitar stuff i do that's the more that was traditionally the more produced sort of yes. soundscape stuff. I was always trying to, I'd say to Dave Holmes, I'd made that stuff with, I'd be like, hey man, you know, I, I, sort of, I hear it like like a feather shattering into a million pieces, or, or this track, I might, imagine it's all carved out of wood, mm. and that's all walnut and mahogany, and you know, you just look at me like this. Well, <laughs> what about this guitar plug-in <laughs> <laughs> instead? And then I had this epiphany moment, this eureka moment, where, um, and it was probably from listening to things like Burial, burial and stuff. Mm. And I love Burial, and I love, I, what I love about that is that it, it sounds to me like music that could only be made now. You know, you, you couldn't make a Burial record yeah. made in 76, you, know, you, 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 you couldn't make a record like that on tape. Mm -hmm. You know, the editing and the, and the manipulating. Yeah, the, the so, whole construction of it. Yeah, yeah it's just, it just wouldn't happen. So, yeah. um, but the, the, the sonic of that, you know, that shopping trolley is bashing into each other, and it's very urban and late night and rain. And, and I was thinking, if, if you live in New Zealand, that's uh, my, my my philosophy of the idea of New Zealand is not an urban mm -hmm. thing. It's more about the grove of Pahutukau uh, trees and Karakari or mm. know, ways sitting the beach. And, and I got into this idea of fire and wood and creaking mm. and stuff. And so I thought I'd have a crack at making these beats out of those things. And there's a really great book called uh, Night by A. Alvarez, and mm. it's all about the colonization of the night. It's somewhere up on the shelf there, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sitting next to, <laughs> sitting sitting next next to, to Stephen King, is it? It's, it's, like, it's, like my, it's like my history sitting there staring down at me. Uh, um, I was looking at unbearable like this opinion as well. It's like one of those... Kate, it's Katie's book, not mine, <laughs> but I know, I know we have that, yeah. But um, 
this, you know, and a lot of our subconsciously, a lot of things are still driven by that, you know, because we've only had electric light for you know, 180 years, mm -hmm. and, you know, that idea of getting back to the hearth and, you know, and before the sun goes down and the wolves come out, and, you know, that like when you're walking down the street in the middle of the day, you hear footsteps, and there's nothing, but when you're walking down the middle of the street, at night time you hear footsteps, it's sinister. Yeah, yeah. And, so, and all these things, and, and even if you're not really aware that the beats on those records are made out of fire, there's subconscious Pavlov yeah. response, Pavlovian yeah. response thing going on to it. Yeah. Then washing that with like um, synth washes, like with um, the, uh, the CSADs, and, you know, it's obviously very inspired by things like Apollo, uh, Brian Eno and Daniel Anwar and stuff. But the idea of all that stuff was getting away, because I'm a guitar player, first and foremost, so the, the guitar was always only really an excuse to write songs for me, it was like a passport into songwriting. Yeah. And with the independent iterations, there was, was a chance to um, place these songs outside of me, outside of my physical cap capabilities. Yeah, yeah. Apart from the singing, obviously, and, and the point, and the, again, but the whole point of layering the voices, that mm. that's an impossible scenario. Yeah, yeah, that's not. You know, because some people, you know, I've, I remember having a chat with Nick Abbott, who recorded the um, Shadows of Birds record, and he was really adamant that um, the best harmonies are, you know, multiple voices, you know. Yeah. But I was. Uh, and that's you know valid, but I sort of go back to the things like David Bowie, and I love that all of his BBs, apart from like you know uh, Young Americans, and stuff, <laughs> are him. You know, mm, mm. It, and it's there's a great thing in Brian Eno's um, A Year with Swollen Appendices. It's probably how it was. Um, he, he, he makes this note about BBs, and he said must must check most popular songs of all time for BBs, and he has this theory that. Um, we all have our talking voice, have mm. the voice I'm talking with you now, and mm. we all have this internal, you know, preceding that, you know, yeah. so that your thoughts are like your backing vocals to your speaking. Yeah, you know, yeah. So in my brain, it makes sense that you'd be singing your own harmonies because they're like um, colours. Yeah, yeah. Of the word, you know, yeah, certain yeah. words bloom and certain words don't bloom. So um, in that process, you know, some of those songs, the the the, the very first impending adorations record was made in three days. Because I had to see it Sadie plug in and I hadn't bought it and I hadn't <laughs> I couldn't turn the computer off. Yeah. But it really did come as a rush. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. And, and it just came out and I'd had um, the song Well Juvenile Love Story, which was the first track. Yeah. I'd really I'd already previously done that and Jeff might have been referring to I he's like I've got like two or three musical comrades and mm -hmm. they're the guys that you know, if I'm not quite... Bounce John, ideas off John Donnelly's one as well, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, it, it, is this worth pursuing? Am, yeah. am I mad or is this good or, you know. Mm. And Juvenile Love Story, I had done a very disintegration, sort of massive joy yep. vision drums and, you know, and something like um, Atmosphere by mm. Joy Division, that's a big influence on that. You know, mm. so it's, it's almost regal. Mm. So, um, it's, it's like the opposite of a fanfare. Mm. So mm. It's like a... Like a like a, a Rothko fanfare or something, yeah, yeah. very sort of slow and brooding, and you know, it takes its time to get there. And um, so uh, that was scratching that, that disintegration itch, you know, and, uh, it's something like that, it's something like playing song, it's you know, one of these sort of big epic things. But when I found, when I stumbled across the aesthetic, it just came out, and, and then all those songs were pretty much written, it'd build the atmosphere and that would sing into the atmosphere. So that Paul Simon thing where you just, you had the backing track. You know, like he speaks about that, about 
that was the difference between Graceland and every other record he'd made is he made the music first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he felt that, you know, in the past he'd write these great songs and then he might not, the production might not match the song, so mm. the idea was to get the production right. Yeah, yeah. And then if you get the lyrics wrong, you can well, change it. think of the album before Graceland. Um, yeah, it's a good example of mostly good songs, or, yeah. or, or, or half an album of really good songs, but horrid production, isn't it? Oh yeah, and one or two of the worst songs he ever wrote, admittedly. But like the the good songs on that really shine as songs. Oh, that um, and the, the Hearts and Bones are one that's yeah. pretty much almost like a a, a test run at yeah. Iceland. You know? That's right. And even you know um, some real strength, the Wandering Jew stuff. You know, they're very. Um, you had an agenda lyrically. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I was talking about that record, but I, I was hung up with Class Vault guys yesterday, which is a massive Poseidon thing. Yeah. And that we were talking about that record specifically, and I was just saying I can't think of a record that has better lyrics. It's interesting how around the time of some of those things like Vampire Weekend started overtly referencing Paul Simon, particularly Graceland, and I guess, you know, it was probably quite cool for quite a while to to name drop Simon and Garfunkel because it's that nostalgia th- function it, mm. it references your parents record collection um, but yeah it was only sort of half a decade ago that his name started coming up again as this there's people like oh, like I've always listened to Paul Simon so I've always thought he was mm. yeah, great and, and I've been a, I've never really cared whether he was cool or not <laughs> it's no, kind of no. you know it's a bit like Mark Knopfler or yeah, any yeah. you know any of those kind of people yeah. it doesn't really matter whether they're cool or not they, they do some pretty cool sounding stuff yeah um, but yeah it is interesting how he seems to have become a bit of a well I think it's just quality isn't it you know at the end of the day like even like um, you know I, I probably for a very long time was just jazzier um, you know, I've, and I've never really got a silly dad you know mm. that, that's just not my thing I'm saying something like Still crazy after all these years, you know. The thing that piqued my interest on that particular song is that they use every note on the twelve tone scale. Yeah. You know, so you got that crazy. Mm. It's just, that's written to sort of grotesque. Mm. And that song, Loving These Hard Times, on the last record, it's every single chord that can use the, I think it's F sharp. Mm. You know, he's, 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 he's real intellectual, but you know, then you get these beautiful, you know, losing love is like a window in your heart. Mm. You know, just stunning lyrics. Mm, mm. But then, so but then, pending iterations, that was a bit of a tangent. It was a good one. Yeah, yeah. Um, There's always time for a Paul Simon tangent. <laughs> and then, and that that, that that so that tack was on, and yeah. you know, and it's a bit similar to what's happened recently with Threshold. Like, so I made Gestalt, and I just, you know, just did it for me basically, and I, and I stuck it out, and that's I was getting a lot of response, and and that tap didn't turn off in terms of, and so I had like three more songs. Yeah. That I wrote. In the interim Which, that in the scheme of it, that's sort of nearly half a record, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, if I write like another. Yeah, yeah. So I had these other songs that have been kicking around, and I thought, well, how about I apply? And I'm thinking about songs like that. Say what you mean. Something wonderful. Which, you know, I can play on the guitar or written on the guitar. Mm. So I was then applying that mm. to um, that aesthetic. And that that's an interesting process in itself. And, you know, it was, it was more like a. It's like some singer somewhere contacted me and wanted me to do an impending iterations production of their songs. Mm. So I was like producing myself in a way. And, um, and it was then I set myself this ridiculous task, which um, the first letter of each release was going to spell this thing. So yeah. And I thought, now I had to do it. Yeah. So and then I made it further, which for me was up until the new one was the, the more successful because it was the. It was the collision of those two different approaches, yes. you know, where yeah. you've got like um, song structure, but you're still doing this very sort of soundscapey, atmospheric thing, and like things like uh, Last Living Soul on Earth and Ken, and I just thought they were like the ultimate sort of versions of that thing. Mm. Mm. 
and then um, and then I put it on hold. I, I did a couple of singles. I decided well, I, I put a lot of work and put them and looked over a bit of the singles, and I was thinking about it seemed to be sort of leaning into that sort of Peter Gabriel sort of uh, sophisticated pop one as well. You know, mm. the station feet as well, the Kate Bush, you know, mm. you know that sort of mm. that thing, and, and it. But I realised it comes back to that prolificism that people talk about that oh you know you should do tracks or you should do albums that you, know, you should do albums you want to do songs but I think if you're the sort of person that writes albums then you should make albums and and, and, and to be honest I think they're more of a talking point than a song. If you're a vegan trainer and you don't know mm. about that bass or you're Adam Lambert mm, then, mm. then by all means do singles because that's the currency of your career. Yeah yeah. But I think you know like I'm drawn to artists like you know, Bob Dylan and Neil Young and people have these vast bodies of work. Yeah. You can jump in at some point and you go, you know, the, like, you know, my teenage obsession with Jeff Rocks, I like the one on the heavy horses. And I've got two ways to travel. You know? mm. I've been traveling to the 80s and you know, broad sort of beast, right? and travel back to the Thickers of Brick for Aklong. Mm. And that journey is interesting. Well, how do you get from Thickers of Brick? Yeah, to yeah. Play it to, yeah. To heavy horses, you know, mm. how, do you, how, how does a prog rock band become a folk band? And, and you know, that Neil Young's, well, I like these 11 records and the next 16 are all for then he surprises you, you know, something, yeah, you know, yeah. Bob Dylan's the same, you know, yeah, yeah. that period in the late 70s, early 80s where it's just awful. Yeah. And then this period where the songs come back with productions off. And then with <laughs> people like that, you also, well, n not everyone does this, but you end up having a period, I certainly have with Dylan, where you go back to those awful records and find that mm. every single one of them has something quite great about it. Yeah, Whether it's that thing of good songs and shitty production, or just one, you know, I was thinking, like, what is it, Knocked Out Loaded, it's one of his worst albums, but it's got one of his, you know, for that period, one of his absolute best songs. Well, I, I well, is that, yeah, is that the, um, Death Is Not The End? No, that's the one after, ah, uh, that's Saved. Down In The Groove. Down In The Groove. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and Saved has got, is it Saved, oh, or Shot Of Love's got every grain of sand, you know, there's yeah. always something yeah, there's on always like one song. Well, I was thinking that, and almost, that, that argument about that consumption of music in the singles versus albums, you know, mm. it's very easy for, um, you know, people of my generation and above to sort of uh, talk down to millennials, but millennials consume music. Mm. And, and, and like, what, for me to find Pink Moon in Fongray, that took, you know, that took a lot of effort and time in, 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 the, in the late 90s, yeah. you know. <laughs> These days I just have to cite Nick Drake and Spotify and, and they're consuming music. Yeah. So my theory about prolificism is that, you know, it's also your, your legacy. I yeah. think you know, you your legacy, but um, I'm not out there sort of waving the flag for the kind of durations and doing lots of interviews or, no. or, or selling it or, you know, it's not no. even physically available. It's yeah, like, yeah. My theory is that... Or performing it. Or performing it, yeah. So like, it's, um, when someone stumbles across it, there'll be this yeah, sort of oasis. body of work. There's a big body of work and they can dive in and consume it. And I guess we're, like, you touched on this, but we, we're all... Um, and some of us are catching up to this, but we're all showing far more of our inner workings in our social media life. And you know, we, we if you have a project, you it becomes wise in the sense to to show people a little bit about it, not just the finished product. I mean, I know for yeah. myself, I um, mention if I'm interviewing someone, I I I make mention of albums that I'm spending a lot of time with, so that yeah. when the review appears, if I write one and it's a long gushing review 
those that care, those those that might give there's a shit, context. have yeah. there's a context around why that reviews a thousand words and other reviews are two hundred words because they've heard me mention it, and 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 that's not a you know, um, there's no sort of exclusionary thing. Like mm. you, you you can still just read a review and you don't have to sign up to follow all the yeah. shit that <laughs> you know <laughs> I I pump into the sphere around that. But yeah. for people who want to, and for me as a way of understanding it, it's is there too yeah it, it, it sits in context I mean like the thing the, the unifying sort of thing about the impending iteration stuff like I wrote this thing very early on about um, like music of the mind like you know you could like, like I was saying with that until the end of the world like you plug in and record mm. it and like you know obviously my physical attributes my hands or you know um, my dexterity dictate I have, I have a certain guitar sound or whatever but mm. taking completely to um imaginary music and imaginary space like that that's hopefully the sound of mm. something that's unique to me you know mm. that's, the, that's the inner workings of my mm. mind you know you know and it's and it's and it's what i was trying to do is get away from recognizable instruments yeah yeah it's almost like i'm i've, I've like you know sort of uh, well, what what i what struck me from what struck me from when i heard the very first impending adorations and it's and you know revisiting the the two latest things just recently which are you know pretty pretty much just new but for me like going back to them after a bit of time out um i keep every time i listen to it i uh, to any of the, the the recordings under that name i think here's someone who um has um essentially come about a different way to offer a kind of song purity because i think with you like people would reference um you know they they were aware of you being involved in other projects say working with SJD or Fly My Pretties or Grabski when it was a, a band mm. sort of performing um, so people would often talk about um, you've got to hear the solo acoustic you know songs the 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 the, the f- people use that word the folky yeah, yeah. songs and I think uh, there were a lot of people that talked about how that was the sort of um, you know an unplugged and a pure sort of thing, which which it was. Um, it interested me, and I and I like that stuff uh, that you've done. But it interests me that you've sort of um, found another way to explore that through a completely yeah. different set of channels. But ultimately, it's, yeah, it's if any, if any the same thing. as folk music as even yeah. my diamond side. Are, you know, it's, it's, yeah. um, and I'm really you know. You know, being a massive fan of a lot of stuff in the world, kind of, you know, especially things like Walter Kander and Apex mm. Twin. And with the exception of, say, Tom York, you know, it's not really something you hear applied as an aesthetic to yeah. songwriting. Yeah. Like, if it's electronic music, then it's dance music. You know? Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But, um, I'm, but, but, or it's, um, you know, background, like um, yeah. soundtrack, you know, yeah, like yeah, its totally. actual score. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just really interested in, in sort of applying some of those a- atmospherics of. Even Eno, I mean, mm. Eno who has released records with singing on them doesn't mm. necessarily apply mm. the aesthetic something like Apollo and, and, and ending Ascent or whatever mm. to, you know, taking Tiger Mountain. It's, you know, mm-hmm. when he moved into instrumental ambient music, he moved completely away from vocal music, mm. and with the exception of, like, you know, a few sort of vocoded mm. you know, moments on, mm. um, on, a, on, on a, Another Green World or whatever. Mm. You don't really, it, that collision isn't there. It's, it's really strange to me because. That's the sound of imagination, mm. you know, and, it, and it's, a, it's a balancing act because you know you don't want to get. It. Even though I love the theme from Harry's game, I don't really want any iterations to be planet, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and so you're, you're balancing those things out all the time, and you want a bit of an edge to it. But, uh, mm. 
Mm. Yeah, it's just a sad. Um, I'd like it to be the sad of my thoughts, and, and really the the, the the success that I take from it is um, that this was this was an idea and a vision on the on the periphery mm. of my vision for a very very long time. And I just didn't know how to do it. Yeah. And the fact that um, that there's some sort of conscious part of me that has just held on to that thread for such a long time. Not long, mm. when I was 16, I was having. You know, mm. Uh, to do it 24 years later. Well, uh, you know, people often talk about going back to previous albums or um, whatever, like as as looking through a photo album, and it sort of felt to me uh, as the parts of impending iterations have come into place that you're actually more so than um, probably was the case with your other albums, and more so than a lot of us, it, it actually felt like you were putting together a photo album, if you like, as it was happening. Yeah, like yeah. Adding volumes that you know it is it is this thing where it, it kind of can exist in the digital sphere as one giant big album or yeah. damn near one giant big song. You know, yeah, if yeah, people it's, want to it's, it's listen like to a, it that way, like a continent. Yeah, like an island you can go visit. And yeah. you can pick and choose as well. Mm-hmm. You can actually. I could imagine people could take two or three tracks from each and make an impending iteration's greatest hits, you oh, know, totally, for the, yeah, a playlist for themselves. Totally, and I, I think, you know, with Threshold, the last one, this most recent one, mm. that was a real attempt, more so than the others, maybe mm. Gestalt's in the nearest name to it. Those are the collections of songs, whereas yes. Threshold is, for me, it's, it's one, it's very concise. Yeah. You know, and it had, the way it comes in is the way it goes out. Mm, mm. The, the guitar washes and it's probably a bit more post rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very much more, um, it feels more bespoke or something to me. There's, there's a different clarity of vision to it. There's a definite feeling there, particularly for me, of the final track feels like a final track, like yeah. it was never going to be anywhere else on that record or on the other records. Yeah. You know, it's a. a a bit of a full stop, but a bit of a dot 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 as well. <laughs> totally, and, and you know, and, and those records, I mean, I alluded to before in the name of the, mm. of the, of the project, they're hand in hand with my fatherhood, mm-hmm. you know, and, and in many instances they're... Um, exactly, hence the photo album, yeah, you know, yeah. thing, yeah. And they're like um, little sort of cautionary tales to my children. Mm. Like, when I'm making those records, I'm imagining my daughter or my son listening mm. to them when they're 60 or 70. Mm. That's a huge part mm. of the, the zone that I'm going in. What the fuck was he on about? <laughs> I, what? We never really understood him. <laughs> yeah. And, they're, and, they're, you know, and, they're, and they're hopefully um, the, the nuance of those life lessons yeah. will reveal itself over time and repeated lessons. And, well, and, my, the, and my daughter's favourite song is Land of, Land of the Long White Cloud. So yeah, well, there's something, <laughs> there is something very, uh, and it's a, 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 maybe a hard word to use, but there's something very reverential about them, mm. you know, listening to them. Like, uh, I remember the, particularly with the first couple arriving so quickly um, together sort of as a uh, essentially an out-of-nowhere mm. project. You know, you might have toiled away at them, but in terms of people hearing them, they didn't know they were going to happen. Oh, there was I, no fanfare, right? So no. hearing them, um, it felt like quite a, quite a privilege to be led into this, mm. you know, essentially kind of private world of sound that you'd been constructing. And, and I know, I'm sure any musician wants to hear that about their album, but yeah. that's not always the case. Oh, no, thank you. I appreciate that. It's, um, it was m- as much a surprise to me when yeah. they turned up as well. You know, it's like, like, like I like the universe and let me in on a secret or something. Mm. And, and, you know, I, I always have, I sort of equate this to like, um, remember Ski Electrics? Mm. You know, mm. um, the car doesn't go unless the needle's in the group. Yeah. <laughs> 
they used to talk about that being down in the grave with folk folk. It's like song lines or something. Mm. Like the Aboriginals talk about that stuff, and they did that, that you know, on ley lines, and you feel like you've you've plugged into the. Mm. There's an energy, and you know, I just you know. So I mean, this was a was and is quite a on many levels deeply personal project. What what um what does the idea of response from people and, and has that what's that oh. meant to you you know like uh, presumably it exceeds your initial sort of aim with it anyway the fact that anyone's listening to it is great but well yeah, you know, so like when I never apart from the band camp I was never really technically released mm. for and mm. the next thing you know like um, it was in the top ten and active and the RDU and BFM mm. and stuff and I, I, that was took me totally by surprise but I've been really overwhelmed and actually really humbled by you know obviously I've been making music for a while and every now and again mm. you know people hey like I really love your record or your name mm. or, or, or a fan letter or whatever but the response to this stuff has been actually some emails the one I got just recently actually took me about a week to figure out how to even say Thanks, and at the end I, I, just said, yeah. I just said thank you yeah because it was like you know it was something about that you've made the the universe a better place and you know, yeah, yeah, really, yeah. really super heavy sort yeah, of yeah. Uh, and you know and you can't help but be and because it's it takes uh, a lot uh, for someone to, to yeah it's very to, brave to, to, say to, that. to say that to someone yeah. yeah 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 and I sort of feel and you could diminish that oh cheers mate yeah, yeah. by, by <laughs> not replying by by fobbing it off or by or really going thanks or going, really think it's amazing as well or yeah. by going so in depth <laughs> in a reply that it yeah. ne- ends up negating what they thought they took from it or something yeah exactly but you know, like I said and the reason it's called gift or gifts if you include yeah the EP is um, I can be objective about it like, I look at it as, as a, a very almost external thing yeah. yeah you know like like, a, like if if when when you have a, a tooth removed or something, you know, yeah. it's, it's your tooth, but it's it's external teeth. Yeah, yeah. You know? um, I thought that was the best analogy. But, um. <laughs> I want to know though if uh, if this is absolutely the kind of end of impending iterations. I mean, you say, you say it's spelled out the yeah. word, and then you've got the EP, which nicely pluralizes gift. Um, but do you start a new word? Do you? St- yeah, is it under this under the same title? Does well, 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 what's actually happened in my artistic process is that um, does it become gifts for you, like yeah. three series or? Yeah. or I should have called it. <laughs> I should have called the um, EP something with the H. That would be gift toss. <laughs> like gift toss in the mouth. Yeah. Um, to a certain extent, it is because I'll just explain what my process is right mm. now, and, and mm. that's probably would reveal the, the answer, I suppose. Um, and by making those records, I really felt for the very first time in my entire musical career that I was that, I, that my voice was sitting in the right space. I found this emotional aesthetic, mm-hmm. you know, and um, and really over the course of those releases, really explored the terrain of that particular brand of pathos or mm. empathy or whatever you want to call it, and I became really fascinated by the idea of um, because it's you know this very um, Hyper-produced sort of, you know, found sounds and CSAs and guitar washes and it's very, very produced mm. and lots of layers and minute mm. and stuff. That could you approach the same environment or aesthetic on an instrument? Mm. Like one, and, mm. and so um, I've written the next record. Mm. It's all um, I wrote everything a cappella. Um, but I actually wrote all the lyrics first, mm. and then I set the lyrics to melodies. Yeah, right. And then I set the melodies to chords. 
Yeah. But um, I'm having the whole thing performed on piano. Um, like, yeah, very, very much in a sort of Nils Fram sort of. Mm. Um, well, you know, it'll be a combination of, you know, hyper. Having it performed, you're not going to be playing. You know, uh, Rashi Malik. Yeah. Who's going to play the yeah. parts, and we've been collaborating on that. And very much inspired by, I think, yeah, like Nils Fram or Agnes Sobel. Yeah. And, you know, right back to Chopin and, mm. and uh, Rex Harty and things like that. Mm. And, you know, there's a. Because my idea is that, you know, it's and the album's called The Old Traditions. So it's like taking. Because, like you said, you, as you pointed out before, like, the impending iterations is fundamentally a song. Mm. Based thing, you know, that mm. has these atmospheres around it. Mm. So, and so, when I was the zone I was going into write these songs, I was trying to imagine myself remembering half-forgotten hymns. Mm. Mm. Like I was like, you know, how did that hymn go? That we used to sing when I was six. You know, you know, not I, I never went to church and never. So it's completely imagined. Mm. And um, and this and that necessarily has facilitated like a, a gospel thing, which is very much in. In the impending iterations as well, mm. and things like Life Burns Bright and Save and stuff, um, and the, sort of the skeleton and the just the, the bare necessity of a song, you know. And, and mm. I'm thinking of, of songs like uh, that Poppy Cannon record, Midair, mm. or um, the opening track on uh, Machos Machos, you know, mm. Lord of Spring, mm. where you just you have to, you achieve the same reverential, emotional aesthetic, but you're doing it on the the ultimate songwriting instrument, which is the piano. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. It has the widest range of harmonies, and yeah. it's, you know, I always think I should play the piano, not the guitar, or whatever. You know, it's 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 the one. But I like the idea that it's that it's a conversation when you're playing solo yeah. piano and you're a singer and you're not playing the piano, then your sense of timing is you know you're really like shadow boxing. I was going to say I love that idea of the dialogue mm. between the piano and a singer. You know, of needing an accompanist. And also, I mean, you couldn't get probably anyone better than well, Rashi to do it. Her playing, I mean, she's, I know she's a friend and everything for you too, which is no doubt important, but I'm thinking, apart from anything else she's done, the piano playing on um, Rian's soundtrack to oh, so Belief he, was yeah, just yeah, um, amazing. Yeah, totally. and, and, and uh, yeah. She's a secret weapon, you know, like, you know, she has a really amazing sense of um, harmonic space. Yeah. You know, so you... She's the sort of person that can play C, G, and A minor, and they just sound like three brand new chords. Mm. Never heard because mm. there are versions of this stuff. And she's a real student of. We, we spoke at the beginning of the whole process. And I was referencing things like um, the earthquakes and, mm. and bits of Bruce Hornsby and, and that here and there. Like you know, great piano music. I mean, actually, mm. I actually really love Brian Ferry's version of "It's All Right." Oh, uh, don't think twice. It's all right. Mm. Mm. You know, there's like what? Oh, it's like. Those piano versions of things like Smoke on the Water, where it's like, like a lick that you want to learn, like if it's Walking in Memphis yeah, or something like yeah. that. There's, there's classic guitar parts and there's classic piano parts. Yeah, for sure. And I, for, for a long time, I, you know, probably with the exception of something like Adele, you know, someone like you, you don't. The piano has lost, you know, it used to be Elton John and Billy Joel and all that sort of stuff. Mm. The, the piano is a, as a, as the forerunner of, you know, popular song, it's, it's really sort of diminished. But the reason mm. I call it, so the old traditions for that reason are these mm. basic old, you know, I thought about releasing it on manuscript as well, you know, but done that. But um, also the, fundamentally all this, the motivating factors for writing songs are still the same things that have always motivated us. We sort of live in this world of, 
escalating technology and stuff, but we're all still driven by fear, anger, jealousy, love. These, mm. the, the old traditions of the operating system for mm. us mm. hasn't changed. It's just, you know, the interface has. Mm. <laughs> so the idea is that we could go right back to first principles. Mm. So that's what, that's the next thing. That's the, um, I don't know if it's the end, but that won't be called the Impediorations. Yeah, yeah. That'll be, that'll be, be a... slash Malik. Yeah. Be, and, and it'll be the old traditions. And, wow. Yeah. So when's when's that going to exist? When's it going to exist? Well, <laughs> it's all been written yeah. and uh, arranged. I was talking with Rashid last night. She's in New York. Um, yeah. She's she's got a twenty-three hour flight and she's got it on headphones and she's making all these notes. And we're getting down to whether or not it should be ninety-six BPM or ninety-seven BPM. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so their plan is to re- start recording that. Um, I'd like to see that in like March, April next year. Uh huh. Yeah. And then I will play that as well. Yeah. Right. I'd like to come perform that. Yeah. Work. With her. As a as a as a as a piece, mm. and I was you know I'm really into this yeah the the wide context of this idea of the old traditions that I've just you know, spoken about um, that you were saying before about you know in that social media aspect of getting mm. context for your mm. and the workings and I think yeah. the songs exist in context of, yep. the, of that idea mm. that fundamentally we haven't changed. Mm. Yeah, it's amazing how um, also I mean even just looking at the structure of songwriting how the, you know it doesn't matter what gets added to it in terms of production or instrumentally the, uh, you know by and large sure you can sing about anything and people often do but really when it comes down to it we're mostly still singing about the same things when you you know I, I did this little study just for my own amusement yeah a, a while back about um, the great songs mm. you know because I'm you know the ultimate ambition of any songwriter I think but my ambition anyway is to write one of those songs that transcends you as a human being it's like like somewhere over the rainbow like most people wouldn't know who wrote that yeah or, and it doesn't or, matter it doesn't matter it doesn't, <laughs> yeah. it, it's almost become folk music yeah. you know it's, it's yeah. transcended the writer and I was looking at all these great songs like you know as, as many great songs as Bob Dylan's written probably another you know, one I'm thinking of something like Knocking on Heaven's Door which, sure you know, it's like every yeah. cover band in the world plays that yeah, song yeah. you know when you listen to the original it's very powerful yeah and the, the, the fundamental flavour that all these great songs have is they're almost they're all gospel songs, you know, mm. and there's some reference to heaven. And if, if, if it's "Stand by Me," mm. you know, the me or the you or the him is always. Can either, it could be a lover, but it could also be God. Mm. And I'm not a religious person, but you know, it's that that yearning for the. Yeah, the, the notion of the notion of God in music is very interesting to me mm. because I'm not what you would class a religious person at all. I'm <clears throat> not sure that I'm. Um, an atheist and I don't know if agnostic quite covers it <laughs> maybe somewhere in between there but okay. I find myself yeah well I just find myself more and more time I guess it's that thing of uh, as you grow up and you, you you know I sort of think whatever gets people through the day within reason is, mm. is fine so you know people's um, belief in something can be really important but 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 then I'm interested in the notion of God and as you, you use the word gospel mm. the, the gospel structure as a, as a kind of songwriting structure and delivery mechanism and as, and as just a genre how powerful that is in music well it's like the Psalms and stuff isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, I, I guess that the, the idea of prayer yeah. or a spell like I really do think that songs are I mean what, what's a spell it's a collection of words that affects mm. a purpose mm. you know and so that, that's what a song is. Mm. You know, what, mm. what, what's a prayer? It's a, mm. it's a plea to our higher power, or to mm. an external force, and that's what a song is. Yeah. You know, that's what you know. So it's, 
it's navigating that space is really holy. I mean, obviously, you know, we all like things like madness as well. So it's not, you know, mm. Mm. baggy trousers is not really a, a prayer or it's a spell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it casts a spell, doesn't yeah. it? It's, you know, th- these things are, um, they take you away from yourself yeah. for a brief moment. And, and that also to bring you back to yourself, you know. It, it, when I was speaking briefly before about that, you know, how hard it was to find Pink Moon or mm. Five Leaves Left or mm. Minster on the Gallery or whatever, but at mm. that time. Um, and, you know. Not so hard to find Back in Black, I bet. No, no, it's pretty easy <laughs> to find that and uh, look what the cat dragged in. Yeah. Um, the, um, actually, when I first moved to New Zealand, I'd never ever heard. I was 12. Mm. I'd never heard Stay to Heaven and I'd never heard Hotel California. And within two weeks of living here, I was convinced that one of them was the National Anthem. Yeah, I was going to say, you would have had your, <laughs> had your fill pretty quickly. But, um, so, but when you did find these records, you know, they took a bit of time and effort to find them. And, mm. and you know, and you'd listen, like you're talking about going back and listening to Bob Dylan's mm. or, uh, records by artists who, mm. you know, not, Neil Young's not, another not, great not example. Their yeah, best yeah. Work, like Zoom or something. Yeah. And, um, and you go, well, what's the fuss with this record? What's the deal? And you invest some more of yourself into it. And, and like when I vividly remember this with the Minstrel Gallery, I think listening to it for the first time, I'm like, oh, I'm not really sure what the make of this. I don't know, I haven't liked mm. it, I don't like it. And I um, it slowly revealed its charms to me, and you know, and it's become one of my favorite records. It actually has my favorite song that I've done, Requiem. It's mm. beautiful, beautiful piece of music. Um, and I had this, I, when I was reading the Harry Potter books or watching the movies or whatever, this idea of the Horcruxes. Mm. I really think like, like great records are like, you know, when I listen to Mr. in the Gallery, I'm connecting with my 14-year-old self. I can remember walking into this second-hand record shop that was a pop-up mm. shop in, a, in an old telephone exchange on, on Bank Street in Whangarei. I, I can remember the smell of the shop. It was a cassette. And, um, and I remember um, part, of me, part of my 14-year-old soul mm. is attached to that record. So mm. when I listen to that record, it's like time traveling. It's mm. like, it's, and it's like... I have this theory about music where if you're planting parts of yourself in these records it, you know, all throughout time, it's like Doctor Who or something where you sort of get these tendrils mm. of yourself reach back across the decades and you, mm. and you can access. I know, that's why, that's, that's why I can't quite let, you know, Eric Clapton just go. <laughs> <laughs> I should be able to, but. Backtrack and change I, your life. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, the cream of Eric Clapton and backtracking yeah. and. Oh, did I remember vividly the very first time I heard Badge and that, that, yeah. that George Harrison part that day? And that's easily Clapton's. Well, I had this theory about Eric Clapton that he, when he mans up, like when his ego is in play, he plays like a demon. Like yeah. the, his his solo on the edge of Batch. Mm. It's because he's George, being tested. It's because that's George right. Harrison's in the room, yeah. and he's yeah. like, and, he, and it's like, yeah. It's like, and I, I watched this thing on. Um, it's like a Carl Perkins television special, and it's Steve mm. Vaughan and George Harrison and the rest mm-hmm. of them, and they do like a rock and roll number, and then Carl Perkins says, and he has got Blackie. Mm. You know, as a, mm. as a platinum mm. fan, you know, like um, when it comes up to special occasions, and he, and, and, I prefer and, and, to call myself a lapsed fan, lapsed Clapton fan. And he, um, and Carl Perkins basically says that the best you've got, mm. and then the next song he does just rips. Mm. And there's a um, Martin Scorsese documentary where he's doing like an orchestra rush, um, and it's like I was playing it to Aaron Tolkien, so he's, mm. he's, he's getting into the blues at the time, mm. and he said, "What do you think about clap?" And I said, "Well." I think he phones it in most of the time these days, and I think he has done for a very long time. But mm. every now and again, mm. someone pushes him, and he's not being handed to by the doll brands of the world. When he wants to pull it out, it's all, it's all still there. Well, I guess it's hard for us to understand the magnitude, the impact of seeing Clapton as God written on oh, walls when, you, when yeah. you're 
you know, barely in your twenties. But if Dustin is God, who is Peter Green? Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. <laughs> but you know, but I just mean like you, you know, he didn't he didn't really put a foot wrong until the early seventies. You know, that like in terms of there was quite an interesting bunch of things going on in a short yep. period. Blind faith. Uh, yeah, you know, they head. all had yeah. good things about them. Um, I, the first solo album, is, I, I think, Not is actually pretty good. Like that, yeah. yeah, it's pretty good. And um, and obviously Cream, Yardbirds, mm. Blind Faith, and Blues Breakers, and Derek and the Dominoes. You know, there's a lot going on for well, so you, barely a half decade. Yeah, well, you're Eric Clapton is like my gentleman at all. Like, I think it's quite important to have yeah. uh, a polarizing, mm. like uncool thing. The like, thing is, I don't really give a fuck about now about <laughs> anything he's done since 1970. But yeah. you know, uh, like, like, when, like, like 1978. Yeah, yeah. Point for me. and it should. Yeah, but they they didn't know that. They kept going. Years, that's yeah, that's years. right. Yeah. And there's, again, there's a lot of things happening in that seven years, you know, they... Oh, to go from uh, being a pretty much a blues band to being, what yeah. they, a progressive folk band. And a bunch of really good albums, obviously some shit-hot perf- performances, you know, no, I never saw them, but they were great. You know, I was a big Jethro Tull fan for a while. And My argument about Jethro Tull is Heavy Horses, is stuff. it's the ultimate British folk rock album. Yeah. Because most of the time, like, if it's Sea Lice Band or fanboy convention yeah it's a whole bunch of dudes playing folk music on telecasters yeah 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 whereas like Heavy Horses is like mandolins collide and penny whistles and mm. flutes colliding with um, Les Pauls on 11 you know, yeah it is rock it's yeah. coming through a yeah. martial stack and it's, it's not yeah it's not fame come on Richard Thompson's pretty cool though oh Richard Thompson's great yeah. Hey, I want to talk. I want to talk to you about, and you referenced it um, before I got the chance to. I want to talk to you about. Um, uh, we, we're already kind of doing this, but where you came from, and uh, musically and, and geographically. So you were born in England. Born in England. Yeah. Um, I, got, I mean, I know that, North but East. I don't know much else yeah. about. And, and you said you were twelve. I wanted to know when you came out here. And well, I came out twice. I came out once when I was um, seven. Yeah. Um, my father. Uh, Works on oil rigs and builds oil refineries and stuff like that. So it was a the Marsden Point expansion project in '82. Mm-hmm. We came over for that first time and went back to the UK. Um, the, the, the northeast of England, basically uh, Billingham, which no one knows where that is. So I always say Middlesbrough because mm. they've got a football team that mm. uh, you know people know about football teams. Mm. Um, my mother's Scottish. My entire heritage is Scottish. Um, very close to the border. I've recently found out that it's the ancestral spaces, the Isle of Skye, which is really weird because I went to the Isle of Skye in like 2003, just because I made a record um, called um, Shadows of Birds Fly, mm-hmm. possibly down the tall buildings. Mm. It's a haiku, it's very pretentious. But, you know, <laughs> if you're making a record with Phil Brown and uh, Abbey Road, <laughs> then you're not a good pretentious. Yeah. Right? Um, and it was mastered by a guy called Dennis Blackham, who lives, he mastered Blacking Stock and mm-hmm. Mark Hollis and like, and Phil just told them up. So I, I, I said, look, I'm from New Zealand. It's, it's, uh, I don't really, I've never really worked with anybody I haven't met. Mm, so mm. I'm going to come up and say hello. Mm. And I'm drinking, drinking Talisker and Portree. And I really had this, what, what you'd call in New Zealand, Turunga Wawai. And it was really just like this, the resonant frequency of being mm. in that space. And I didn't reckon, I didn't know at the time that that's, you know, my blood goes there. Mm. But um, yeah, so I moved to, Eventually settled back in New Zealand when I was 12, um, from her own, from her boy's heart. And so this is because of your dad's work? Oh, well, basically, my dad travelled around a lot and, mm. uh, for work and stuff, and he got, and I'd been, I already changed schools, like, 
Create a lifestyle here, yeah. So for the for the children, you know. Yeah. And so um and so um and it's crazy because you know I I started getting into diet strikes around that time. Mm. It was like mm. 1987, so mm. brother's nose is still on mm. But you know, I'd grown up. My dad, like, I remember vividly my father bringing home making movies you know, the day it came out. Whatever. Mm. But on, he convinced me that it was him and his mates that they had this band that <laughs> at the pub. And I remember his friend Sean Morgan and um, we were out to their house up the next day, and I, I was. I'd, I'd sort of convinced like I knew that it was a lie, but yeah. I, I couldn't quite let it go. I was like, you play drums in my dad's band? <laughs> you know, so was, and you know, a ton of love, the, the Dakota, a ton of love, yeah. really began my love affair with um, music. You know, it, was, it was really emotional. Yeah. You know, and I Still think, is, isn't it? You know, like, really, you know? And I think because he's talking about Whitney Bay and stuff yeah. like, you know, and, and the thing about being an emigre, mm. and this comes back to that Death Row Tall thing and why I like that record so much, because it's, it's sort of, I can't really intellectualize it, you know, I can't mm. really make sense. Mm. It's gone, I can't really tell it it's gone about anymore. I think mm. it's so invested in, it's one of my home mm. books as well. Mm. Is that um, when you're in a migre, like, you pine for this idea of your tradition yeah. or something. Yeah. So, and that, and what, probably the second or third night that we were back in, we were right back in New Zealand, my dad put headphones on me and said, listen to this record. And, and I'd gone up with heavy boxes and then mm. came out when I was three. Mm. You know, so this is like nine years later and he, he made me read the lyric sheet while I was listening. You know, it's all things like I am flat feather feet pounding the dust. It's so yeah. British. Yeah. Such a quintessentially British. Yeah. And by British like my mom says, you know, if it's if it's good and it's English, it's English. If it's good and it's Scottish, it's British. You know, but you know, it's such a yeah. collision of all those yeah. cultures, it's not particularly yeah. Celtic and not Gaelic and it's not like uh, hey nonny nonny and mm. maples and stuff. It's it's it is a real conglomeration of, of British stuff and, and you know obviously Mark Knopfler's sort of Geordie roots mm. and you know so there's a real I attach a lot of um, my heritage or the idea of my heritage to by was access to me by mm. music mm. you know to be listening to one one Brian Mouse which is you know based on Ultra Mouse by Robbie Burns and I was accessing my culture mm. my which was my proxy mm. Mm. and um and that's like one of those great catalogues to jump into, you know, Jethro Tull, you can go in two different directions. Mm. And so I was really sort of, that was a, that was a way into music. And I, you know, as long as you steer clear of Twisting by the Pole. Yeah, 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 okay. yeah. Talking, <laughs> I'm talking about Tull, but you know. Yeah, 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 but with Dire Straits. With Dire Straits, basically, <laughs> you realise really quickly that the first album is absolute genius. Mm. And it just gets diluted from there. That's it, I was going to say, <laughs> I always say now to people, first, first two albums really, first... First three on a good day, and first four if I'm being really kind. Because yeah. you know, there's some okay things about the Rover Gold, but but I don't. <laughs> also, I never feel like I need to listen to it anymore. Yeah. Whereas I do get that compulsion with making movies. As you know, oh, yeah. um, Tunnel of Love, like it's got that. It has still got that um, thing when it reaches its musical climax. Oh, when well, the, 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 the arpeggio. Yeah, the yeah, 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 yeah. And the the build, yeah. and I think it's sort of like. You know, I always end up sounding no, a bit like, like a Springsteen. I, yeah, I <laughs> always sound like sound like a bit of a diastrates apologist, but it's I think that's like a track. And in fact, I've I've played that, I've DJed that in a bar and watched people 
talk about how they can't stand Dire Straits, but that you know, oh, but actually this song's fucking great. You yeah, know, yeah, it is yeah. one of those ones that I think wins people over. There's a great um for your listeners. Um, I don't know if you've got the the Blu-ray of um, Alchemy. Oh yeah, it's right. A great documentary, the, okay. the arena documentary. It's, yeah. it's it's just after communicate and before making movies, and it's and at the end of the documentary, David Knopfler leaves the band. Yeah, 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 right. And that's the need about to make make mm. movies, and it, you, mm. it's a real seismic. Mm. There's a real shifting gears. Mm. You know, they, they could have been like a. Because you see them in the rehearsal space, and they're still doing the same old things, like, mm. like a boogie woogie sort of bar band, sort of. Mm. It's sort of JJ Kale. Yeah. You know, JJ Kale is like remove, like, it's like Open Hearts, they're removing JJ Kale out of Dire Straits on mm. making movies, and mm. Jimmy Ivey and you know, the E Street band, Ron Bittman. But yeah, so it, it, it's a. That's. That Amigre status, that. Um, that really goes hand in hand with my um, my love of music. You know, it was a mm. lifeline back to that space. And then also, you know, because I was aware of the guitar, but you know, I was just going to say, where does never, that come from? Like, well, I'd never really seen one. Yeah. Um, so when do you first pick up a guitar? Fongaroo Boys High, or the first day of school. And so, mm. what instrument would you like to learn? Mm. Well, that's not true. In Fongaroo Intermediate, because I was there for six months before I went to high school. In the back of the class, there was um, three nylon string guitars. Mm. And there's a young guy called Anthony Renata, who's like. You can play stairway. That's when I first mm. heard stairway. Yeah, yeah. And um, and I went to California and stuff. You know, and I learned how to play smoke on the water or something. And I was really fascinated by them. Mm. And they were just sort of available. I think mean, that I don't know. This we're talking about nineteen eighty-seven. And um, I think a whole bunch of people in New Zealand were patting themselves on the back for making instruments so easily available. Because mm. in the UK, that was not. You know, I went through. You know. On and off, eight, true, eight to ten years yeah. worth of schooling, and I never started to play that. It's not a glockenspiel one. Mm, mm. Or yeah, it was always really. So recorders, everyone's playing their recorders. Always very readily available at, at my schools. Like, yeah. yeah, it was recorder at primary school, but at high school it was really open for anyone to. Yeah. You know, and it was compulsory for just a few months to learn very basic keyboards, which is a great thing to, yeah. to do for kids because, you know, it's obviously the, the whole sort of structure of music is there for you if you want it. Mm. And those that don't, that's fine, you know, but that's that's the stepping stone. But, you know, so, so there was a list came around and, just, mm. and there was a list of instruments, which ones do you want to learn? And um, my first guitar teacher was a guy called Terry Toole. He was great. He was real sort of a, he had a, he had a master's degree in farming, basically, agriculture or whatever, but mm. um, he decided, I said, oh, why don't you do that? He said, oh, I like the idea of making a living out of playing music. And he was a lovely chap and plays more fiddle now than he does, but he was very much of that um, blues singer. He, mm-hmm. like, he taught me uh, Tommy Johnson tracks, mm-hmm. you know, Howlin' Wolf. And Did you learn the most from records, though? Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I was, I've always been a bit of an autodidact anyway. I mean, yeah. um, you know, I think because, you know, changing schools so much, mm. you start self-educating. I, you know, I was, Precautious, sort of. Not precautious, sort of like tap dancing, any sort of kid, but <laughs> precautious, sort of uh, hungry for knowledge. Yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. I, and I'm I, gonna find out how this works. Yeah, no, so I got went through this point of thing that it was really important that I memorised all the great ports. Mm-hmm. You know, there's around 15, and mm. sort of memorising Byron and Shelley, and mm. all that. Yeah, I was just driven by that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like Terry would show us like a barcode, and you know. My guitar lessons were on Tuesday afternoon in school, and you know it would come back the next Tuesday, and I would I'd, I'd lock myself in the bedroom for like you know hours until my arm fell off, and, mm. and I had bar cards done, and all the the rest of the kids in the class were like you know yeah still waiting, trying to make a shape <laughs> trying to make a shape, and you know so I started learning the guitar when I was 
13, but my first guitar for my 13th birthday, and by the time I was 16, I was teaching guitar. Mm. I just, then I just, I would wake up and play the guitar. Actually, I, I have to thank my mum for this, but my wake up was I just leave a record on my turntable, mm. and mum would come in and put the needle on and <laughs> place it, and, uh, and it'd be a cup of coffee. So it was your choice. Yeah, I put the record on at night, yeah. and then and I would wake up to an album every day. Yeah, nice. And then I'd play the guitar until I went to school. I took my, I took my guitar to school and I played it. Interval and at, at lunchtime, mm. then I walk home, and then by the time I was sixteen, I'd be walking from school to the guitar shop where I talked for half two hours, and I was teaching like priests and doctors, mm. and you know, really, I was going to be older. I was going to be flipping and say, where does where does one find music in Fongaray? But it looks like you found it yourself. Well, there's three music shops, you know. There's three guitar shops in Fongaray. Yeah, I know. The reason I didn't say that, apart from just referencing it, then was that I'd, I've only spent a couple of hours in the mm. place, so you know, passing through once. So I don't really have, a, a, you know, an understanding of what goes on there. Ward's Ward's Music on the Corner is a guy Eric who used to run that, and um, another guy called Roland who um, worked for him, and he now owns Ward's, and it's moved to the old um, music theatre, and there's a recording studio upstairs, and he's really given so much to that community mm. in terms of maintaining a, a high quality, um, I mean, just the, the actual sort of range of things that they, you know, like, mm. I was playing Ernie Ball custom gauge phosphor bronze, you know, really mm. particular strings mm. at the age of like 14, 15, mm. I, and I used to change my strings every week. Seems bizarre to me now. Mm. Not because they snap, because I just want new ones. New ones, yeah. And you know, if you're making money, you know, and my teaching guitar was funding my record buying and yeah, yeah, and, and string and, and string purchasing. And, and and like you said, asking you know, about learning stuff like um, because I started teaching so early, my method of teaching was so. Well, what are you into? It? Mm. And they would say, well, I really want to learn how to play the wind by Cat Stevens, or I really want to learn how. You'd have to go out. and learn it. Yeah. And so I'd, make, I'd be going to Musical, which is another great record. Yeah, mm. Musical was a great record shop, one of those great record stores. And I'd go and I'd be buying like the Black Album MT for the Tillerman for the, mm. uh, at the same mm. time, you know, mm. and, and sort of learning all these pieces. And then you get those really good students who are, you, you teach them the hardest thing you know, and they come back and they play the next week and say, well, I've, I've got to go and learn something. Yeah, yeah. I've got to go push myself. Yeah. They also the best way to learn something is to teach it. Yeah, I was just going to say, it's very true that, isn't it? Like, you do you do learn a lot from teaching, and, and I mean, that's a great example right there, like, actually having to go out and learn the stuff in the first place to yeah. convey it. And it's interesting to me, you know, that the, the same songs always come up, really. Yeah. With like, 20 or 30 of these. And Stock. Some, yeah, and there's something about the way they feel in your hands when you're playing mm. them. They feel classic. Mm-hmm. They're like, a lot, a lot of the stuff on Blood, Sugar, Sex, Magic has always been requested. And it, mm. it, like, I could have lied, or you know, mm-hmm. Funky Monks, or... You know, and that's the way I access that record because people ask me how I play things. Mm. Like, oh, nothing else matters. Probably mm. yeah. Oh, even more than words or tears in heaven. Yeah. You know, they, these are they, they, they come up all the time. Yeah. There's something about the way they feel in your hand that it's it's like the path of least resistance. You know, the, mm-hmm. or the, the, the it's like learning a really cool dance or something. And, yeah. and 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 through that, you know, as a as a burgeoning songwriter, you're really understanding how these things come together. Mm. You know, and then I'm teaching this guy who I'm playing. The Blue Revolution, and he was a Peter Volinger, he's still there, and um, he paid me extra money to teach him after hours after a shop was on, and I'd sit in this shop full of clothes, mm. and he'd be asking me, um, he'd be playing me things like um, Solidarity by John Wright, mm. or Nobody Loves You Will Be Down and Out, and you know, all the sort of bluesy things, and and that's where I was getting into open tunes, you know, mm. and you know, and it's, it's, it's such a great journey. Like you get into Led Zeppelin, and next thing you know, you via Jimmy Page, you learn about Nick Burt Jens, mm. and by 
by the very edge you get the John Rambo on it. Yeah, yeah, John yeah. Rambo and you get the David Graham and in the context of that you hear about, about um, the new blood and that sort of collision of folk and jazz and that really mm. interesting period between like seven like nineteen seventy one to seventy three where you've got like Astro Weeks and Solid Air and mm. you know, this mm. that whole witch season thing where you get this mm. collision of folk and jazz meeting for the first mm. time. And pentangle and stuff, but you know, it, 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 then it dissipates really, really quickly. Mm. I mean, when I made that Eden record, that was really my love letter to, to that. To that, yeah, yeah. You know, jazzy sort of band mm-hmm. folk music. Yeah, yeah. yeah with a lot of opportunities. So, what happens after school? Do you, is that do you go down to Auckland? When do you? Oh, Dunedin. Went to university in yeah. Dunedin. That was another sort of crazy thing. But I arrived mm. in New Zealand. Like um, New Zealand music was a dirty word. Yeah. No, and that's how I said to the guys in my high school, you know, what's, on, what's good New Zealand music? And they go, oh, there's not good New Zealand music. Yeah. And that's massive cultural cringe, and, you know. That, and then I was at a friend's house when I was 16, mm. and they had this monumental record from the Get Rid of His Day. Mm. I said, what the fuck? This is amazing. What is this? He said, that's a straight jacket that's melt. Yeah. And I said, oh, where are they from? They're from Dunedin, and I was like, that's in New Zealand, isn't it? <laughs> and everyone's been lying to me, you know, and I'm also a sub alternate. Yeah. You know, not not the, you know, and I love Dave Goblin and all that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the Flying Nun stuff. Yeah, and it wasn't an irony and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, um, it was access to Jean Paul Sartre and the Chills, yeah. and, and it seemed to me it really obvious that all this was emanating from Dunedin, so mm. the time came to go to university. So. And also, you know, like anybody in the hometown, I couldn't wait to get away. Yeah. From Ray, you know. And Auckland's not really getting away, I suppose. No, you know, I've been to Auckland and access Auckland and I was there and, you know, yeah. driven down for concerts and the queue mm. and stuff like mm. that. It was away. Mm. It was in the South Island, you had yeah, to fly yeah. down there and across mountains. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and then sort of landing in Dunedin. And I really, I was really lucky to really catch the tail end of that whole sort of thing. Super 8 was still in play, you know, mm. the cake kitchen were, mm. were happening and, you know, um, the Empire and the Crown were in full swing, and you know, so immediately you form a band and mm. you're playing at the Empire and the Crown, and Mark mm. Phillips is in the audience, and Graham Nichols is over there, and you're just accessing that culture. Mm. And it was a, you know, and you know, I, I, even things like you know, Sin sounds silly, but they had a shop, there's a shop down there called Plume, and it's like, you know, it's all Zambezi and non and so being aware, becoming aware of other artists and mm. other disciplines happening, mm. you know, if it's fashion or if it's fine arts, or you know, and, uh, like black race, that mm. sort of thing, and all these things that you know, are just, just coming of age, really. Mm. So you made a couple of records before you made the records as Gramsci? Yeah, I made um, a solo record. That's I left Dunedin. I, mm. I was, it, was the, it was the music I, I it wasn't a band and thing called O. Mm. And uh, with Jesse Boer, who went on to be in um, Luma, and um, played with Das Pedras and Dating Bodo and stuff like that. Um, and I we did this gig in Tillemans and in Cargo and at the end of it I did a solo set and after that I was like, oh, solo, this is the way to go. Mm. And it was very much, um, it was very loud, lots of fast strumming and it uh, wasn't a fingerstyle thing at all. I did a record, uh, a solo record of that material and then very, very quickly uh, Dunedin's tractor beam sucked me back into Dunedin. It's a very hard place to leave. Mm. Your resources are... Your, 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 Smaller commute, you can get things happening really fast. Yeah. So I did a, an album called The Prayer Engine with um, the Friends Improv Band, they're called The Avalanche. They were called The Avalanche Trio before mm. I even got there. And, um, mm. So I wrote material for them and that's when I started really getting into the open tunings and this mm. 
GDDs and I was playing gigs with Paul Byer Jones and he, he really mentored me mm. for a while. I remember my first gig with him, I, I, got, I got his number off the uh, proprietor of the Ruby in the Dust it was. Mm. And I said, he said, give me his phone number, he said, well, come and meet me at my motel and play me some songs because I'm mm. not going to just give you the gig because you asked for it. Mm. So I rocked into his room and I sat down with him, met him, you know, and I was sitting like here playing Paul Bonner John some, you know, mm. guitar mm. stuff. And I got through about one and a half songs and then we had, and then we had a massive conversation about Colin Blumstone and then he my voice had some quality of that. Yeah. And, and oh, they would have seen him off, oh, yeah. Yeah, and he was like, um, <laughs> Oh, do you, like, do you, like, do you, do you drink whiskey? Yeah. And so were doing, he said, I can't drink in that time because I'm playing and stuff. But you know, we, have, we, we, we drank half a bottle of whiskey. Uh, yeah. I was like 17, 18 years old. Yeah. So that was great. And um, yeah, and then the, the Avalanche Trio, that was really, um, we had a really magical thing happening, really. And we recorded that album above Ruby in the Dust with a Borrow Night track and Stephen Kilroy. Well, I remember asking, can we, can we borrow some bikes? So I have some bikes. And he said, yeah, I'll leave them. Um, Counter, I went in the next day, and behind the counter, in a in a in a countdown shopping bag, was mm. like two U forty sevens and you know all these Sennheisers and you know just mm. amazing microphones, mm. just a gift. Mm. There you go, mm. and you know that's really indicative of the the musical community down there. You know, very mm. helpful, like Tex Hutton. You know, there's all Fish Street stuff, mm. and, um, and we recorded that album upstairs in a day and a bit. And it was all live takes and. Uh, I remember I was living on apple pies at the time. I think that before. You know, that, 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 that's like the nutritious thing. <laughs> um, and then um, we, we just toured, and toured, and toured. And then I, I, um, my touring led me to make it. Because mm. Jesse from Oh was living there, and my girlfriend at the time was a midwife. I was studying to be a midwife, and uh, she was from the Hawks Bay. And it seemed to me like a really good place to be based because there's equidistance between Auckland and. Wellington was cheaper to live there and, mm. and um, nice climate nice. Yeah. yeah and sort of the second night I was living in Napier I met Dan Holmes so I was 16 yeah. at the time and, mm. and um, you know those records I've made to that point were I've always had this idea you work within the confines of your resources and so my initial resource was me and a guitar and second mm. resource was I found this great band that had a cool aesthetic and so I you know, appropriated mm. them mm. Um, and then then with David, I was like, I'd written that song easy, and he was like, I thought I could imagine like a choir. He's like, okay, we just up for anything. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's like 47 vocal packs, so, mm-hmm. and, and we just had this all, but all we had was a, a pretty basic PC, no synths. Mm-hmm. So the reason there's so many, so many voices on all the Gransky stuff is because you know, we didn't have any keyboards or anything, yeah, yeah, so I had yeah. to make all the texts by singing them. Yeah. And um, I was programming all that stuff on Fruity Loops. You know? Yeah. And, um, and we, it, very, we had this called Soul Digital Audio Workstation. And you know, that's really pushing that computer to its, to its limits. But I would I'd build those tracks pretty much at home and then come with Dave and then we just layer up vocals and guitar parts. Mm. It was very quick. We did all those songs pretty quickly. Why did you shelve the well, Gramsci moniker? Why did that yeah, well, stop? Because it turned into Flipper Map. No, um, what happens, <laughs> like, so we made that record and then I made a second mm. record object and it was, you know, a collision of, it was in the slipstream of like Kid A and things mm. like that where you were mm. sort of exploring the collision of Sonics and you know, computer based yeah. music and yeah, yeah, music. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, it became more, I had to, you know, my living was touring, so mm. that became a, half of that 
record is actually just a live band and have that record as me and Dave yeah. using things. And then the process of doing that, as you start playing live, I was talking about this with um, the last podcast last night. Um, so if you watch any singer-songwriter's career, it's very soft and gentle, and as they go on, it gets rockier and rockier because they're playing gigs. Mm. And for the gig to work and be to engage the crowd, there has to be a push of energy. Yeah, they get louder. They. And I was thinking, and so Dave and I had this conversation. I went to the UK, mm. and I made a, a, with Gramsci, and that version of Gramsci just collapsed in about three days. Right. Because the reality of being in London was a yeah. bit more than yeah. really thought about. Yeah. And I met, uh, met up with Zane Lowe, and, um, he was like, well, you should just do, you're in London now, you can do what, what, what would you like to do? Yeah. What, what would be your dream record? And, I, and at the time I was heavily influenced by Mark Hollis and quiet music, and very, yeah. very spacious. And, and so we made, um, and, you know, like Laughing Stock and things like that. We, we made the Shadows of Birds record at yeah. Abbey Road. And that was with that team, and it, that was a real artistic breakthrough. That for me is like my, that's like my um, Astral Weeks before my moon. Yeah. Uh, Moon dance, you know. Um, mm, mm. One's, a, one's an artistic breakthrough and one's a commercial yeah. thing. And off the back of that, I got signed to Sony for the Shadows of Birds and came back to New Zealand and they wanted me to make a Gramsci record. Because I wasn't really, I'd moved into that solo thing yeah. in my head, but they wanted a Gramsci record. And I thought, okay, so I was booked today when we spoke about we're going to take that live band thing to us and let's do it with the guitars. Mm. With guitar players. Let's make it like that really adventurous guitar record that can be completely and utterly performed. Mm. There's mm. nothing coming off tracks and there's nothing being mm. triggered. It's actually, you know, two guitars, bass and drums and and uh and then he says one guitar, bass and drums. Because I was getting the idea of singing as well and getting away from my porky mm. stuff for that. And then oh it's been a long time now so I don't might think anyone will mind me um, talking about it. Mm. Basically the drummer fell in love with the guitar players. Right. So, hence Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> yeah, and very Fleetwood yeah, Mac. And yeah. we, we did, and this happened, the, the actual occurrence happened three nights before the album release. Right. Perfect so, timing. <laughs> so we had to kind of then do these shows mm. in that environment. Wow. And then we, we played the Big Day Out, and that was, the, that was the moment I was standing on stage playing these songs, and I felt like I was like an advertisement for the t-shirt stand. Yeah. You know, it didn't yeah. feel like it was a, the, my spiritual quest that yeah. landed in a commercial reality. Yeah. And so that was the last gig we had to play. But the, the Big Day Out, my response to playing... Yeah, that, I was going to say, I'm sure the Big Day Out could do that to you. Yeah, I was just like, well, that's, that's, that's me. And I, I mm. ended up, and I wrote all of the music, all the songs for Eden. Mm. For the course of, if you look at the last Gramsci record, it came out in 2005. Mm. Towards the middle of 2005. And, Eden was recorded in December. Mm, mm. Yeah, I, I remember at the time the quick turnaround, yeah. you know, and I really, it's been a long time since I listened to it, but I really yeah. liked that final Gramsci record. Yeah, it's, 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 it's an impressive know. record. Yeah. I think, you know, it's, it's um, epic. Yeah. Guitar rock. I remember it was an interesting feeling going, oh, that's a shame. Um, that's clearly the end of that project, yeah. but, you know, you, you came straight back with this. I guess for a lot of people, other side, and it, you know, it coincided for I know because I was working in music retail at the time, it kind of coincided for a lot of people in discovery of things like Nick Drake and, and yeah. so forth for you know for listeners. So and it was a response to to me a lot of people like you know the song on Grand Theft like all the time in the world or the, yeah. the acoustic sort of thing, which is like a prototype of music yeah. anyway. Yeah, people 
and people who knew me and were friends were sort of I always felt like people waiting for me to make that record like mm. it was a record that mm -hmm. you know I was always talking about Astral Weeks and I was always talking about John Martin Solid and mm. I was talking about you know Nick Drake and stuff and it was just a it's like in my mind I'd already made that record, but I actually hadn't done it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then again, like it seems to be a, a path of course. Like on the, yeah. the process of touring Eden, I wrote all the songs for Diamond Side. Yeah. Because I had to make the set longer. Mm. So they're all the same C6 tuning. <laughs> this is only things come out of just. I just, I, yeah, I just remember thinking it was, you know, it was hard to be, it was, it was hard to be mad that this band was finished, this band idea, because. Um, because this other great record had arrived, yeah, well, so I, yeah, you know, it, 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 it was it, a total flip side or whatever. For, but it was hard to be cross because it was like you know, you know, it'd be uh, if you'd ended a good band and put out a shit record, that's yeah. a problem. And a lot of people do that. A lot of people go off to be a solo. I yeah. guess for you, you'd already done solo, and that you know yeah. existed in some sphere as a solo act. And and I think you know, for me, there's something very pure about you, and that there was a there's a real artistic statement. Yeah. It was made without any commercial concerns. It was recorded live. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, capturing, trying to capture like, mm. not a click tracks or overdubs. It was like lightning in a bottle. The great thing about that, though, is that then becomes marketing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can talk about it, yeah. Yeah. Really. And, you know, and I was really conscious of the, that I needed to do that very fast mm. to um, just to maintain the momentum of what mm. I was doing. And to get paid. You yeah, know, like yeah, to create, gig, create yeah. opportunity to yeah. gig again. And yeah. at the end of, and after the touring of the Diamond Side, that's mm. when I started working for him. Well, I got this, I've had, we've got a place up in the Hokianga and I was looking out to sea one day and I was thinking, my my grandfather's dying regret was that he never grew a beard. Mm. And I've always sort of taken that to be like the Catherine Mansfield, sort of be all that you're capable of being. Yeah. And I, you know, I've been doing it for 10 years at this stage and I was thinking, you know, there's 365 days in a year. I, I might play a hundred gigs. Like I've done like seventy or mm. gigs that year. Mm. Seventy-seven courses. And you know, uh, and then I'm practicing sort of four or five hours a day on guitar. Um, and I'm writing. Mm. But, you know, probably that's like another hundred days. Still like hundred, almost two hundred days left where, but I didn't feel fulfilled. Mm. And it, almost at that precise moment, I got a phone call from Mushroom Music asking me if I'd like to come on board as like a A and R sort of mm. licensing person. Mm. And so I said yes, and I you know, just just got married, and you know, uh, was wanting to be a father. So there's a, there's a level of mm. staying in the same place. Yeah, That's yeah. Not, like I was gonna say, responsibility. Being a bit more. I was, I was definitely making, you know, it wasn't a, a money making thing. Yeah. Staying in the same place. Otherwise, yeah. I would have been all over New Zealand or Australia. Or, yeah. And to take it even further, you know, season, I, I didn't want that. I wanted to be centered for that. I was hoping you'd bring up mushroom because I wanted I wanted to purely to ask. Um, what um, what you sort of got out of that role in terms of understanding of uh, your previous frustrations if you know around making music and what you got out of it in terms of yeah. being creative well it's interesting because I mean when I went down to Dunedin you know it wasn't just to watch the uh, fits and the chills mm. I did a degree as well and it mm. was a law degree because mm. I was I had this idea that if I was going to put that much blood sweat and tears into the creativity then I really wanted to understand it's a bit naive now because I could have read a book. Yeah. You know, but, yeah. <laughs> but if you've got some letters after you know, it helps as well. Mm. And because of that, and because I had that understanding and that focus on intellectual property, I'd always thought that at some stage I would be a publisher. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I want to have a publishing company. I'd you know, read about Paul McCartney and Michael mm. Jackson and all that mm. sort of stuff. And, um, 
and you know, because I had that sort of knowledge base, um, I've always been a an ally to my musical comrades. And mm. you know, hey Paul, you look at the contract. Hey Paul, you, what does this look all right to you? And, mm. and well, what's what's a mechanical royalty or what's that? So I was, I was, so basically, when I moved up into Mushroom, it was just like turning the volume up on that part of my role in my mm-hmm. personal community. Mm-hmm. Because all the people I'm speaking with are peers, um, had been comrades for a long, long, long time, mm. in many instances anyway. You know, like when I moved to Mushroom, I was publishing Anita Moore, and obviously Anita and I, have, we make music together. Mm. But, um, and I always felt like I was fighting the good fight and um, holding a company like Mushroom accountable to their promises. Mm-hmm. You know, and also making sure everyone's on the same page. You know, it's 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 a very misunderstood. It's like a dark art. It's like mm, a master. Mm, mm. Um, that that was the um, I could speak in layman's terms. Yeah, I was going to say you speak the artistic language. Yeah, yeah, and and um, also you know, so it's publishing uh, uh, a lot of artist artist minds at the moment is like it's like a synonym for synchronization. Mm-hmm. Synchronization is just a very small part of it. That's like winning the lottery. Really. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's about the bread and butter and about the um, the relationships and the um, and the advancement of your craft mm-hmm. that can be offered through that. And so that's the really interesting part for me. And obviously, license, you know, licensing. That's about protecting the fundamental role of licensing, apart from getting money off advertising companies and film and television companies, but the use of music mm-hmm. is protecting the value mm-hmm. of music in the community. Like you know, if someone says, "Hey, look, I really want to use that song for an advert. I've only got." Mm. 200 bucks and so well you know I want a Lamborghini but I can only afford a Toyota Corolla that's mm. you know it's um see it's it's about saying no you know so it's a, I feel like a really important part of um, because I have that facility mm. I have a responsibility to um to be in that space between commerce and art and, yeah yeah and, and look after it and add value to it and protect the value that already exists you, I mean, it's it is a murky area, and it's like for me, it's it, you know I'm I'm sort of I've always figured I'm best served having as little to do with the business side as possible. But unfortunately, that's sort of somehow I somehow have to try and fit into that, and it hasn't you know it hasn't worked out that great for me a lot of the time. And I haven't haven't probably approached it the right way a lot of the time I'm aware of. But but you know I'm someone who doesn't you know make music. Uh, apart from having a bit of a jam now and then and mucking around but I always thought you know when you're in that role with Mushroom I kind of went you know here's it's nice to hear you talk about it in in the way I expected because I kind of thought um, here's a guy who one thing I thought you'd offer is it's really important when people in those sorts of roles understand what it takes to get up on stage Mm. and yeah, and be vulnerable and, L- and be artistic pies. and exactly <laughs> and live on apple pie you know but all sides of that mm. but it, I mean I would you know I think you know uh, I don't want to sort of try and um, suggest there's any sort of importance in anything that I've done performance wise but I, I do I do sometimes think well at least I have got up on the stage before and yeah. I know what that's like there's an empathy yeah there is a bit maybe I don't exercise it that often but no. um, but there is like and I mean for me I've got up and read poetry and stuff like that right. and, and that's you know fucking daunting or yeah, it can yeah. be like yeah. it can be really uh, fun and really easy and enjoyable but also it's it's a bit of a well, it's a bit of a fool's errand, really, I think. But, you know, I, I sort of always thought that about you doing that, and I guess it's the same with Jan Halregal, 
yeah. with her sort of ventures at the moment too. I think well, here's someone who actually yeah Rather gets what it, what the lifestyle is about and what it takes. Yeah, and that's right. You know, there's a, you know, it's um there was a really heated response to um the Silver Scrolls this year with um, mm-hmm. the, the publishers doing the speeches and mm. which they always do. And Apple present an mm. award to the publisher that you know I think if you got a four and a half hour um, ceremony, you probably could get rid of a few presentations. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, it turned into a very xenophobic thing. The, the criticism of it, because you know, everyone has Australian accents. Mm. So this idea that our intellectual property is held offshore. Yeah, right. But um. And I think it was just, it's actually the behaviour of one publisher that kicks out of the whole thing if they mm-hmm. hadn't been particularly belligerent that evening and mm-hmm. I don't think it would, it would have been a Yeah, it wouldn't have been the story. Um, but that's that thing about, you know, fundamentally it's because everyone in the room didn't feel like those people represented them. Yeah, yeah. You know, perhaps if I got up and said mm. thanks to Grayson or, or whatever, then, mm. uh, um, then it would have been it would have been less of an issue. Mm. Mm. Um, but I think that's what you're talking about. You know that that, yeah, that, 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 that you're a, um, you're an ambassador. Yeah. You know, and for me, it's about keeping both sides honest. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, both sides have made a commitment to each other, and it's making yeah. sure that that commitment's been. And obviously, I've now moved over to native tongue. Mm-hmm. That's purely in a writer relations manager mm-hmm. role. So my job is to again keep sides mm-hmm. both sides honest and, and help those writers to develop. And you know, if they want to talk. You know, a lot of young bands and a lot of like, bands that are actually going to play, you know, don't have management, and so you know, you, they just need to access knowledge. Really, mm. and, you know, you're either in a position to give it to them, mm. or you're in a position to introduce it to the person that can give it to them. Mm. You know, mm. sort of it's always surprising to me that maybe it's the different all the different schools and stuff that want to do it. I always assume that everybody knows everybody, but it's really. Really yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I think that. Remember working with Beck Ronger and she did some co-writing. She did work with. Yeah. And she said, "Oh, no, they want one of them with me." You know. Well, that worked out okay. <laughs> but yeah, you tell me. That's how you go. There you go. I know you, and I know you. She goes, "There you go." Well, I'm I'm purposely very removed from that, but um, and, and geographically too, mm. being in Wellington. But but I know, yeah, it comes up all the time for me. People just assume I know people and I don't at all and and not because I haven't not necessarily because I haven't tried to but I just don't is it's interesting you bring that up because that's um perhaps one final thing I wanted to talk to you about was um I've heard this story from two other sides of the two people involved uh which is talking to Rand Sheehan on this podcast and then in a in a print interview talking to Jeff Boyle about how those two came to work together and they both cited you as the mutual friend who and we've talked about them earlier how they're sort of they're part of your support network of go-to yeah. guys that you collaborate with and that you throw ideas at and go does this suck or not and and with Sean Donnelly as well I was going to say you've got excellent taste there and the, the people that you've right. managed to work with but how did you put like what did it mean to you to put those two together and like it obviously just made sense so I, I, for some oh, reason I just wanted to get your yeah, well, version I, of that well um, I met them both around about the same they're both my groomsmen actually yeah. as well so they're, they're both dear friends individually. And yeah. And I've always thought of Jacob as like the world's loudest ambient band. Yes. So, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's, yeah, the tagline is yeah. post-rock, but it's not quite right for them, actually. No. So, well, it's not quite right for a lot of the things that it ends up describing now. But of course, no, I was thinking yeah. post-rock is just like bands that have really, really... 
Potentous song titles for what should really be called Jam E minor. Or, yeah, I was going to say bands <laughs> that aren't good enough to write songs. Yeah, well, a little bit of that too. Well, the songs are like Tomorrow's Yesterday as the beginning of the past. Of, mm, or uh, the Shadows of Birds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's more, there's more lyrics in the title than there are in the song. Um, no, so I mean, um, you know, Rina had come from that sort of with paradigm shift and stuff, you know. Um, actually, Paul and Bonner Jones got me into Rina Shift. Yeah, right. I wondered that. when you yeah when you mentioned Paul, I thought, well, there's another connection. Well, that was prior to me making the first Gramsci record. Mm. You were saying, well, this guy in Wellington's doing this interesting collision of acoustic guitar and um, you know, mm. obviously Rina. Mm. I don't know if people forgotten or didn't even know. You know, he's a Mac guitar player, mm. stunning mm. guitar player. Mm. Um, and uh, so, and then I, I, right after Object came out, I met Rean at San Fran Bathhouse, and he, he basically came up to me and said, I really, really like Object, and mm. it's really interesting record. And he was making Tiny Blue Biosphere, and so he came from this sort of like, for want of a better description, like a Cafe Del Mar sort of you know, yes. um, trip hoppy sort of, yeah. you know, and you know, with jazz and stuff, there's like vocals, and you know, it was, yeah. and you know, and then he had this really, he went through a real crisis, um, musical crisis, you know, like, um, where he sort of really disowned all that stuff and it, it was re- really down on music, he mm. was making these textures and it seemed to me that he was getting more and more towards, I think I, I'll just take credit for it, you know, I, I, mm. I think I played him discreet music for the first time or something, mm. you know, and, and then just this whole love affair with Harold Budd and, you know, ambient. sort of, you know, yeah. Um, Those sort of almost ambient idealists. All yeah. and all that, you know, and, you know yeah. that really sort of rejuvenated him and, that, that's where like, um, standing in silence and stuff came from. And as he was making it, um, I suggested that I thought Jeff could add some. Because there's a, there's a track on um, K.L. Drew called The Burner, mm. which is almost like a Pachyballs mm. type type thing. And then I just knew that he would add. And and uh, again, it was a bit like the Bikranga um, Mint Chicks thing, where like, oh no, you want to work with me. You know, they're, mm. They're, mm. they're a cool post rock sort of thing. And I'm mm. this Cafe Del Mar. <laughs> Uh, cafe jazz guy, mm. at, uh, you know, Saint Germain or something, mm. and um, the, the Jeff literally, you know, about a day later, just drove out from Napier and the beginning of is it Selling in Silence Part Three? Yeah. Which, um, there's a video with a guy standing on there. That's Jeff plugging his pedals. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, and and, and, that, and that's that relationship, you know, with, with Rian doing the strings for harmonia. You know, yeah, Jeff playing me, live with yeah, Rian. There's, there's a real. Um, because I was, I just saw that aspect, of, and that, that comes from Jeff as well, you know, like, as much as Jeff is into Godflesh and mm. all the rest mm. of it, you know, there's a huge part of them that's into the No Pussy Footing, yep. you know, and Eno and all that stuff too, and like, I think in his mind, perhaps I'm just speaking for him, but that respect as a composer outside of that particular genre, yeah. you know, that um, there's more to him yes. than that, and I think that his collaborations with um, with Rian have been a real um, exposition of that. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You know, the, 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 there is so much subtlety and nuance and how. I mean, Jeff Ball is one of those guitar players. As soon as you hear him play, you know it's him. But like that's mm. you know in the history of guitar players, you know, mm, mm. It's, it's a very rare thing to be able to say. Mm. You know, increasingly rare. Mm. Um, he owns that thing that he does. Like he plays on the title track on Threshold, and you know it's so. Yes. Old. It couldn't be anybody yes. else on the planet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think um, 
don't know if I quite said that, but I certainly felt that listening to it, and I made some reference to that in my review that you know it's it's sort of only Jeff Boyle, and but I was thinking too, like all all three of you, what was sort of interesting to me about the three of you knowing each other and 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 then coming to know each other as as now all sort of mutual friends and and pairing off in different ways to work together is that all three of you are kind of primarily guitarists but you've all because even Jeff I mean the guitar is his primary thing mm. far more than perhaps you and Rian yeah. and, and when you look at all of your work but he still kind of finds ways to to obscure it to yeah. bury it a little bit um, not out of any shame for it at all but just to yeah. just exploratory he can shred man yeah yeah exactly <laughs> but, it, but often like, and I'm thinking with Jeff particularly say his work with you but also you know particularly his work with Rian is mm. where the guitar is it's not about having a guitar player it's about having a person who can provide a sound it just yeah. happens to be the guitar that's the conduit for it yeah it's, it, he's like a an emotional cloud creator mm. you know, it's like um it's like the bloom of mm. a sound you know yes. he's, he's and, it, and it, within the context of what rain does and the, the collision of he adds just a, an emotional mm. layer into mm. it it's, it's almost like a mm. yeah i can't think of the the bloom Mm. It's not the hit on the guitar string; it's the it's the thing that yes, that comes after it. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. it's yeah, it's sort of, it's sort of what somehow um, happens somewhere in between his hand and his foot. Oh, and, you know, you know, it's the it, it's which phenomenal. Is, yeah, you know, and it's yeah, and it, he's just always been when he was. I met that night when I went to um, when I moved to Napier. I met David mm. Holmes. At, Jesse had a party, and Dave Holmes and Jeff Ball. Mm. and I met mm. Jeff mm. that night and we became sort of instant best friends it's f- funny it's sort of that thing too to me it's a recognition thing yeah I was going to say it's that thing of and being in a and you know these are still small towns anywhere in New Zealand apart mm. from Auckland really is mm. and certainly Napier and Dunedin are good examples of it where you go to a party or something and the, the two people who love music the most find each other and you mm. know that's not to say there aren't no. others in that room that love it but the two who probably think they love it the most mm. that ends up coming out and they you know it's a wonderful community I mean that was that, that, that particular time you know um, sort of was it 98 to 2002 mm. um, some of the best friendships I've ever enjoyed you know mm. from that space and, and that's the real that's the real mm. making of Jacob too isn't it that yeah. time period thinking about it like you know well they're just on the EP yeah, with yeah, Chris yeah. Laker and can we yeah. come in and stuff you know that just been by, recorded by Dave yeah that one of his yeah, recordings yeah. you know yeah. uh, 14 Edward Street and that's where the first two Grams Gear records were made and you know there's mm. and Jesse Boer and uh, there's all these great Luma and LV3 and uh, and obviously Jacob and, and Gramsci was a for all intents and purposes in Napier Bay mm. um and all Flaherty's was going off, you know. It was, it, yeah. All the bands played all Flaherty's. Yeah. yeah. There's always bands coming through, and yeah. you're always playing enough. So you know, I, I didn't see Jacob on that last day, but you I, didn't I, see I, me playing in a fucking awful Irish band up there around that time, did you? Because I, uh, uh, well, well no, <laughs> yeah. I, I just realised a that's really insulting to the people I play with. I mean, I mean, I was playing fucking awfully, and two. A fucking awful Irish band makes it really hard to narrow down in New Zealand as well. Yeah, but, especially if it's O'Flaherty's. Yeah, yeah, but I, I was playing up there around that time too, actually. Yeah, well, you know, so. it's, and then, you know, O'Flaherty's is like one of those places where there was upstairs accommodation. And yeah. It was, it was, it was but it was that Paul, would, Paul Dubana would go and play there. Yeah. It was that melting pot of seeing 
really interesting original stuff and then just seeing you know like covers bands and, and solo performers yeah yeah, lot yeah. Of solo performers and you know I saw so much music and, mm. and, and, and it was you know it was one of those places where you really got looked after and that jukebox was cranked and I got really yeah. good at playing pool I was going to say the pool tables <laughs> and yeah the, um, the mulled wine a, that's the other thing is that Jeff's a really really good pool player ah, right. so we used to go to the um, Napier Cosmopolitan mm. Club and Thar play snooker we used mm. to live together for mm. a while mm. you know and it was just a just a constantly like a symbiosis, you know, yeah. just like feeding each other's, you know, and so, you know, he'd be playing the new Jacob stuff and I'd be playing what I was working on, mm. and, you know, and, we'd, and um, we'd have lots of dinner parties over our house and invite everybody over and mm. put two Hammond organs in the house and mm. sit mm. there playing the draw bars. So next year we're going to hear the piano mm. duo album mm. and then an EP is going to come out three days later. Probably. Or another whole, or, Actually, a, du- or a double gatefold album. I have another record. As well, <laughs> this is what I, this is where I'm getting to. I'm sure you do, but it's it's a um, it's a guitar. It's a probably the, in the lineage of Eden and Darwin's side. But my my I do for that. I've written all of the music, all the guitar parts. And, you know, it's very it's all in string. Fat get so, mm. which, which Paul Barna showed me. But I really have an ambition to not sing on it or um, do something like a pentangle type setup where I'm. Um, Create that musical band as a as a platform for a, yeah. a collaboration with a yeah. preferably a female singer. Yeah, different voice. Yeah, and um, yeah. but really that sort of it's really in, it's the most intricate sort of me pulling up my sleeves on the acoustic guitar and getting back down the basics mm. and you know writing things that I can't play and then mm. practicing them for mm. at length until they become second nature. But put that in which we would normally do as a solo thing. But I mm. would like I think I'd like to put it back into that sort of context of an Eden type thing where syncopated lines on the bass and you know uh, mm. and, and, and the rhythm section um really almost prog folk i was gonna i was just gonna say so it's you tapping into that heritage mm. again isn't it yeah not quite escaping it well that's just just there yeah yeah yeah, yeah. part of the dna yeah wonderful hey well thanks for uh thanks for uh sharing all this all this stuff that's such a uh, it's such a big catalogue of yours to, to work through i mean i don't mean like you know, hundreds of albums, but just the these periods that the are variety, marked. Yeah. The variety it's marked off by, and it's quite handy for people to approach. And that it's marked off by the under these different monikers, yeah, monikers, different names. There's sort of like different sections in a in a store. Well, I was just realising, you know, as of the release of Threshold and Spectator, there's there's more in Penning Adorations music than there is. The yeah, the others. yeah, yeah. Which is, <laughs> and it's come out in a faster probably period. a faster period. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Three years. Yeah. Four albums in a week. Yeah, wow. By the end of our first conversation, we had found common ground. Recognize the strength of the foundation and build a friendship of shared intentions that slowly get pulled apart and put back together again. Choices have been that much different 
the decisions of our existence that slowly get pulled apart.